thank you to three awesome Bitcoin companies for supporting this show. The first is CoinKite. You know them, you love them. The makers of the gold standard Bitcoin hardware wallet, the cold card. Uh, excellent product, amazing company. The Bitcoin ethos permeates everything they do. And they have a bunch of other awesome stuff for protecting your Bitcoin and also just expressing your interest and love for Bitcoin in different areas of your life. So many of you will be familiar with the cold card, but of course, there's also open dimes for physically transacting Bitcoin. The Block Clock Mini, which displays sats per dollar, current block height, uh, current USD Bitcoin exchange rate, and lots of other fun stuff in their store. So check them out at coinkite.com. And if you're in Canada and you're looking to buy some Bitcoin, go to bullbitcoin.com. This is a place to do it. They're a non-custodial exchange. You send them your money, they buy Bitcoin, and they send it directly to your cold storage. So they don't hold on to it for you. They make sure that you are custodying your Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins. If that is a daunting proposition for you, they've recently launched bitcoinsupport.com. So basically this is a service in which they hold your hand and help you get set up properly for taking custody of your Bitcoin. So all the different things, the hardware wallets and the protocols and the coin control and all the different best practices for making sure that you're set up securely and as privately as possible with your Bitcoin and that you are in control of it, that's what this service is for. Now, a lot of you may have already gone down the route of custodying your Bitcoin. So what I'm really excited about for this service is being able to send all the people that ask me questions about taking custody of their Bitcoin, which I don't have time to properly answer or hold their hand with, I can now send them to this service, which is awesome. So bitcoinsupport.com. And lastly, the Bitcoin 2022 conference. Uh, this is where Bitcoiners come together to celebrate Bitcoin, to meet each other, to talk about all these ideas, which we often uh, talk about on podcasts and read in articles and that kind of stuff. And it's an incredible experience. I developed you know, a ton of amazing friendships that I now include amongst my best friendships just over the course of a couple days uh, last June for the Bitcoin 2021 conference. This one's going to be much bigger. It's going to be on Miami Beach. It's going to be sexy. It's going to be fun. I can't wait to go. So if you'd like to go, use the code RAPIDFIRE at checkout and get yourself 10% off. Mansell, what's up, man? How you doing? Good. I just uh, finished a hunt this past weekend, so having a little bit of decompression yesterday evening, and now I'm back to creating. Nice. Well, I mean, for people that may not be familiar with you, you know, I wanted to I want to ask you about uh, the hunt that just ended, and actually what you do afterwards too. But maybe a brief introduction to, you know, who you are and and what your your thing is. Sure. Yeah, my name's Monsal, and I have an organization called Sacred Hunting. And uh, basically, what I like to say is I facilitate transformation for people. And I just so happen to use hunting and plant medicine and Native American rituals in order to facilitate that. So, you know, yesterday, uh, we had, a, or this past weekend, we had a hunt where six participants came and you know one of as an example one of them was a 16 year old and we went through ceremony and he had an opportunity to you know just cry about 
losing his father and like really feel supported by a group of other men and come through the experience feeling like he kind of transitioned from boyhood to manhood and he didn't even uh, kill an animal. Um, and so that's why I always say, you know, it's more about the transformation than it is the, the hunting per se. Uh, but that's what I do pretty much full time. And uh, I facilitated uh, over 30 different experiences in the past couple of years. And looks like I've got a full plate this year as well. Nice. How long have you been doing this? Uh, so I've been doing this for three years, but in the current incarnation of of sacred hunting, it's been uh, about two years. Right after COVID started, it basically is when, or right before it started, um, is when I started like really committing to this as as my vocation or dharma, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. Beforehand, it was just kind of a a thing that I did for friends who wanted to have a similar experience as I. Yeah, I got a ton of questions for you, but just to give you some context for why uh, I I was interested in having this discussion with you, I don't know if you're aware, but um, in the Bitcoin community, quote unquote, there's quite a, uh, a, there's a lot of like carnivore or high meat, you know, diets. And although it may seem initially strange, like the big the the culture emerging around bitcoin is far more than just you know people making investments and trying to make money it's a it's a, it's a you know somewhat of a profound cultural phenomenon and it involves not just learning about money and economics and finance and investing but it has to do with diet and it has to do with healthy lifestyle and it has to do with history and philosophy and it's really interesting that, to see this thing emerging um and but you know naturally when you put your your eye of interest on something and you look at its current incarnation in the existing world, when you throw your uh, analysis on something like the modern industrial food system, it's horrifying, right? And so, you know, this may be a little bit hoity-toity, but I think in general, Bitcoiners, one of their primary orientations is they're seeking truth. And the truth doesn't matter if that truth is about money or history or food or, or diet or whatever. And, uh, you know, so we want to establish the we want to determine what the best relationship with food our food should be i guess is the best umbrella way to say it and as i said a lot of people are coming to uh appreciate the benefits of a high meat diet but it's obviously not just the what but it's the how and the context that you put around this stuff and so there's a lot of people interested in regenerative agriculture and there's a, you know, a lot of people interested in hunting and what i really liked about your book and your work is at least, and I've, I've been on one hunt in my life, right? So I'm coming from a very non-experienced uh, perspective, but I always felt uneasy about just going into the grocery store and picking up, you know, a nice pa- uh, plastic wrap steak and bring it home and cooking it and being so detached from the reality of the process behind that, right? Because, you know, my dollars, my demand is killing that animal any, anyways. And I felt bad that I wasn't involved in that process. I was outsourcing the nitty gritty to somebody else. And not only that, but I was, my dollars were making sure that that animal was in most cases having a pretty shitty life. And so that was, you know, I've always been uneasy about that. And that's why I went on my first hunt uh, in 2020 and when possible have been trying to choose sources of meat that if 
are not, you know, hunted by myself or someone that I know are at least raised as ethically and uh, naturally as possible. So all that just to say, you know, I think the truth of, of this relationship with food is having a sacred uh, is the context should be sacred because you're taking, not only are you taking life, which should be done with the utmost, you know, respect and care, but you're also transmuting, you know, you're taking that nutrition that life is giving it, giving you, and hopefully transmuting it into good in the world, right? It's a very kind of alchemical concept and it's a very holy concept. And so I think the proper relationship is to make it sacred. And, you know, it's awesome to see that people like yourself are, are really expanding this and making it available to people. So I guess one of the first questions uh, is just how you came about wanting to do this, you know, two or three years ago, what was the impetus behind not only just deciding that you wanted to do this and take people along and share the experience with them, but also integrating as, you know, things like entheogens and other sacred practices to properly contextualize this. And what does, what does that context actually mean to you? Yeah, great question and great elaboration on where you're coming from. Personally, I've been involved in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency for a long time. And I think there's probably a cohesive uh, through line for, for a lot of the community to kind of remove the middleman and, and an awareness that a lot of the systems that are currently built are flawed or broken and that there's a, a desire to have more self-responsibility, to have more self-sovereignty and things like that. And that applies both to you know financials with cryptocurrency it applies to being able to acquire one's own meat but it also uh, it also is uh, applicable to our own you know relationship with a higher power and i saw a statistic recently that basically said something like 70 to 80% of people at least in my generation are spiritual but not religious and i i, I believe humans have evolved to have a certain relationship with a higher power and that might be just the 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 universal laws of you know gravity and physics etc that govern govern the way that we live but uh, so I think that there's, yeah, there's this, this really deep uh, opportunity for us to check in with all these different areas in our, in our sovereignty with regards to them. And for me, the relationship really started from that place. I didn't, I had not grown up hunting. I had, you know, uh, some misconceptions and also just judgments about how it, is traditionally done and that kind of kept me a little bit separated from it but i did desire to have a, a connection to the process of killing an animal knowing what that's like taking responsibility for it and in retrospect it was very much a desire to connect with some masculine part of me that i never had modeled you know there's <clears throat> We can all have uh, males in our life, but oftentimes if they're not emotionally available, they're not, they haven't done enough work on themselves. It's hard to get the same level of virtues that our ancestors would have gotten from wise elders and things like that. So I pursued 
the practice of, of hunting uh, for those reasons. And I, my spiritual teacher, you know, he, he helped me see all of these experiences and how they fit into my life. But it was accidental that I was going on a hunt and I inadvertently scheduled to do ayahuasca in a men's retreat setting. And so I had this really close uh, proximity from a time perspective between doing some pretty intense entheogens and plant medicine, and then having my first hunting experience. And that is really what started to shape it for me from just a utilitarian, you know, learning how to hunt, which is nothing wrong with it per se, uh, perspective into a more like sacred practice for me to be spiritually connected to death. You know, a lot, there's also a lot of overlap between the Stoics and, and a lot of people in the Bitcoin community from what I've seen. And the Stoics believed in having a connection to death regularly as a way of living more fully and being more present to our, uh, the, the finality of our lives. And so I use it for that purpose as well, which is a very kind of spiritual connection to be uh, philosophically uh, connected to death. And I, I got really lucky that I have been drawn to spend time with a spiritual teacher for nine years who has a very deep well of knowledge around indigenous cultures and practices and uh, philosophies and has shared all that with me. And so I, I, I really have just brought all of that together. And, you know, a lot of my friends, they like to joke about this, but I, with sacred hunting, I've kind of created uh, a world that is all the things that I find most interesting and most true and most virtuous. And I just invite other people into that world. And so it is, you know, partially different indigenous um, rites of passage and things that I've learned and things that I've picked up, but it's also wisdom traditions from uh, Christianity and Islam and all the different things that I've experienced in my life. Also through some of the hardest times of my life, like spending time in prison and things like that. And that I, I have seen uh, supports many men and women. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So is it fair to say that the at least the hunting element of this came from a sense of yearning or an absence of the masculine? And you thought like, well, you know, I the thing that feels maybe that I even have a, the most obvious aversion to in a sense. I mean, if I'm not feeling very masculine, then hunting is probably not one of the things that, you know, I'm being pulled to. But because of that, you, you were pulled to it because you kind of wanted to confront the uh, the lack of masculinity, masculinity, maybe. Is that fair to say? Yeah. When I grew up, I didn't have masculine role models and I didn't know what it meant to be a man. So when I, you know, I get, came out of prison and I started to have this inquiry, I didn't realize it at the time. I really just followed what was 
most interesting to me. And so I followed and did jujitsu for a couple of years. And then I decided I wanted to do hunting. And in retrospect, it wasn't something at the moment in the moment that I decided was going to be a practice of, of, you know, masculinity, but in retrospect, I can definitely see where I was on, you know, the cliche, like I was on a journey in my life to find out through embodied practices, what does it actually mean to be a man? And that's not only what I teach through the sacred hunting experiences, but that's what I continually am learning, even as I lead year after year, because there's always something new and there's always an edge that I am on to, to learn and to heal, you know, the masculine. And I can have, you know, I have examples from this weekend, even that were super profound. Um, but, but definitely, you know, masculinity is a huge part of it. Yeah. I'd like to hear some of those examples in a few minutes, but you know, it's, it seems like such the case that for whatever confluence of factors, because obviously there are many and, and, you know, a lot of us in the Bitcoin world would say that, you know, the fact that our society and culture is predicated on a fiat money system is at least contribute, at least contributes to this softening of all the edges in society and this, uh, this gulf that gets created between reality, you know, perception and reality effectively from consequence. And I think part of the reason why there's a pull for so many to encounter those things is because is there's like a really obvious and confronting realness to those things, whether it's hunting, whether it's combat sports, jujitsu, Muay Thai, whatever, whether it's uh, well, proof of work and Bitcoin, for example, like these are, these are things that are unavoidably consequential, let's say. Uh, and if you're not fully present, and if you don't call upon certain aspects of yourself, you're going to be, they're going to defeat you in some way, whether you, you know, you just can't handle the situation or you're actually defeated in a combat situation. You know what I mean? Like it, it really, and I think there's a, I think that's part of the reason why these things are emerging. And at least my observations in this space, in the world that I play in like that, a lot of that stuff is happening. Like I said to you before, like when when people are seeking this, this return to realness, this return to truth out of a, a society and culture that is so much predicated on delusion, illusion, ego, et cetera, there's, a, there's such a yearning for that. And it's interesting that so many, like there's so many shelling points for that. So many people seem to be converging on these things. And um, what, before we get into some of the direct experiences and stuff like that, what is the, the general, if there is one, setup for this? Like how are entheogens uh, integrated into like a trip, perhaps like you had this weekend or last weekend? Yeah. The, the way that I utilize them is so many people, I, I, I believe oftentimes, especially in, in spiritual, uh, communities, uh, plant medicines can be kind of co-opted and maybe over utilized, uh, because it is such a, it's such a quick way to a certain perspective. And I think that's super valuable, but it can definitely become a crutch where, you know, journaling or time or, you know, time in nature, whatever the case may be, might be uh, more helpful, but a little bit harder to do, so to speak. And so what I find really valuable is using a, an entheogen in 
a, a specific context to provide perspective. And so going and doing something like ayahuasca is by itself, which I did, is, is great. And I'll do that, you know, every so often. But what I'm trying to do is not just have people come to experience the entheogen. It's to have all of the, the learnings and the teachings that come from a hunting experience, the embodied uh, wisdom that is coming through when you have a gun in your sights and you know either you miss the shot or whatever, there's a lesson there, right? And that lesson about maybe I didn't practice enough and where am I not practicing and preparing enough in the rest of my life? Maybe I see an animal and I decide not to shoot because it's not the right shot and I don't want to wound the animal. So I have a a great reflection of my ethics and my morality, which shows me, you know, who I am and who I want to be. Well, all of these, these things that come up in the hunt, it's really valuable to integrate them through some type of context and perspective. And, and, and theogens have had, a, uh, you know, they've had a reputation for doing that in, in many different cultures for thousands of years. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's a really storied tradition uh, historically of using entheogens and hunting uh, together. And oftentimes in the, in the parlance of the indigenous people, it would be for hunting magic, so to speak. But in the modern way that I do it, it's very much meant to support that transformation and that perspective have a new outlook on the things that are happening in the moment, the things that are happening in one's life, and therefore provide, uh, you know, another, uh, another opportunity for growing above and beyond just the, the hunting container in and of itself. And to the point of, of, you know, what we talked about earlier, what I talked about earlier, as far as spirituality is concerned, um, psilocybin, for example, mushrooms, the word in the Aztec language for psilocybin mushrooms, what literally is translated to flesh of the gods, because it creates a, not just an intellectual, you know, understanding from the Bible, for example, of, of, of what God is, but a felt sense of the presence of some form of higher power. And that is in and of itself a beautiful experience to, to have that relationship. And so those are some of the, some of the reasons why I, I, I implement it the way that I do. Yeah. You know, it's, <clears throat> there's so much, I, I spent several months in two different on two different occasions in 2008 and 2009 in the in Peruvian Amazon. Basically the first time was to go down and, you know, uh, do several ayahuasca ceremonies. And then the second time I was toying with the idea of apprenticing to be a, sh a shaman. And so I was doing that for six or seven weeks. And then I decided that that's not really the path I wanted to take, but it's that in conjunction with, you know, my general interest in, uh, indigenous peoples the world over, but particularly, you know, native Americans, um, you know, books and stuff read over the course of many years. And then my own, uh, psychedelic practices, which are always done in the wilderness. There's so much wisdom contained in 
those experiences and traditions to like, and I'm not even really getting into the, let's say communion with the Godhead aspect of it, but just the connection with nature that one is able to establish. And then the kind of the wisdom that cultures that have been doing that for millennia have passed down. I mean, I, it's just, I'm so happy that this radical reductionist materialist culture that let's say characterizes, you know, 21st century modern culture is starting to be imbued and starting to accept and starting to be open to and starting to integrate a different kind of knowledge and wisdom, right? Because, you know, both have tremendous benefits, but we've, we've overemphasized one to the detriment, well, to our detriment as a result of underemphasizing another. And I think, you know, stuff like you're doing and the general interest in these practices the, that's occurring these days is revivifying and, and uh, you know, bringing back a lot of that, that wisdom. And one of the, you know, one of the things that I'm always just so amazed with when I have my sessions in the wilderness is just the, not only the rhythm and patterns that you end up noticing in nature, you know, because in normal day-to-day -day life, it's windy out you and, and cold, maybe you run from your car to your office and the wind is an annoyance, right? You can't hear somebody or, you know, whatever. But when you're out there for hours and hours and hours and you're, you're really, really dialed into it, I mean, it takes on a totally different uh, character to the point of oftentimes, at least to my perception, taking on personality. You know, the, the rhythms become almost intentional rhythms. And it, it, it's really interesting to hang out in that space and witness the unfolding of the personality of nature, let's say. Um, so, you know, th there's so much here that I, I think is going to be a part of our emerging culture. And I'm, you know, I'm super excited by that. One of the things that you mentioned, like the interest in psychedelics and some of the pitfalls that, um, exist in overemphasizing their use. And I, I totally agree with that. But one of the, the things that is often instilled in people that pursue these sorts of experiences is, you know, a, a connection or a union with, you know, the ground of being all that is the universe, however you want to characterize it. And that seems to instill in a lot of people, and I, I guess, in me as well, an, an extreme reverence for existence, myself, the natural world, pretty, you know, everything. And I'm wondering how you, um, how you confront it or what, what kind of relationship you establish between what I presume is a similar type of reverence, but also the allowing yourself to take the life of an animal, despite having that type of reverence in that relationship, you know, because I think this is a, somewhat of a disconnect or something that's difficult to integrate for a lot of people. They establish that extreme reverence for life and then uh, being involved in the taking of life so that theirs may continue on. I, I think that may be a challenge. Maybe even you, you've got some you know, stories of people confronting that, but I'd love to know how you, how you did. Yeah, I would say one of, the, one of the greatest lessons that I've learned from the practice of hunting in a reverent way, as you suggest, is being able to hold tension and polarities at the same time in a more profound way. 
And what I mean by that is when I kill an animal or heck, when I even just see a dead animal that's been hit on the side of the road, like roadkill, there's a sadness and there's a grief that comes up in me for this, you know, this animal that has a family that has uh, different emotions and they're mammals that are a lot like us. And that is that, that like connection and love is, is on one side of the tension. And then this other side is the animal in me that wants to exert my dominance in a way of speak, you know, manner of speaking onto the, the animal, my will in order to consume it and to be nourished by the meat. And I can put fancy words in, you know, saying nourished and all that kind of stuff. But at, at the end of the day, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm imposing my will on it. Right. And, and so there's, oftentimes a desire to do one of those things or the other in most of society. In the case of hunting, as you've described, there's a desire to either just be in that reverence and sacredness of life, or as many people who have grown up hunting and hunted their whole life, there's a desire to just impose their will as much as possible on the the animal kingdom plant kingdom whatever the case may be and in a world where we need integration of our full selves holding that is a practice in and of itself how can i hold the tension of the sadness and the grief of needing to do this but still taking responsibility at the same time and there's so many examples of that in terms of how we relate to the to the world i mean there are people who there are people who uh there are needs for the billions of human beings and yet there are needs for the planet and sometimes there are odds but if we can feel both of them then maybe we can have a more uh clear pathway to uh, preserving the planet in a way that the current legacy systems have not done a good job of doing. Mm -hmm. One of the things that appealed to me about hunting my own food and doing so in a way that was, and, and my hunting experience, I don't want to be too harsh on the guys I went with. They're all, you know, great guys, but they were in the category of people that you just mentioned that had been hunting for their whole life. And so it was very, nonchalant you know there wasn't very much ceremony around it uh and you know i i want that because part of the reason why you know i want to hunt what i eat is to imbue my life with greater meaning right to know to be confronted by what it takes for, for my life to carry on and persist and i my hope and my initial experience is that not all the time we're all human we all get caught up in a bunch of bullshit all the time, but like to be reminded intermittently that something, you know, that you, as you just said, like something that caused me to grieve and be sad and, you know, be somber and that kind of thing um, had to occur. And I was involved in it in order for me to carry on. So how am I going to respect that type of sacrifice, even though I imposed it on, on the animal, but how am I going to, how am I going to uh, respect that in, and 
in order that it imbues my life with a greater meaning and hopefully directs my thought, my speech, my behavior toward greater good generally. And that, for me, that was a big part of the, the motivation behind beginning to get into this world and, and hopefully, you know, as time goes on, establish, integrate that and establish it as a, a more prominent factor in my life. Yeah, I find that so much of, it sounds absurd to, to some people who don't have experience, but so much of my life that is now in service to conservation, to, uh, you know, pr preserving wild places and supporting, uh, you know, ethical treatment of animals, whether I can eat them or not, um, that has all come from killing animals and wanting to preserve their place and wanting to, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an indigenous uh, belief that animals, game animals will offer themselves to the hunter if the hunter and the people are willing to support the rest of that species. And so it's, it's a trade, you know, the deer comes to me and when I kill it, it's, it's not really about my skill. It's about the deer offering itself so that I become a, a steward of all the deer and supporting them in, in maintaining their, their health, the land, et cetera. So it's, it is very, very heavily intertwined to, to have these kinds of profound experiences of killing that lead to, you know, the utmost respect for life. Yeah. I feel like that's a, a tension that not a lot of people perhaps have the maturity or the perspective to appreciate. I mean, do you get, do you get pushback from, you know, people calling you a hypocrite or, or that kind of stuff? And if so, what's your general response? I I've gotten some definite pushback and some, you know, negative, negative uh, insults and things like that hurled my way. But when I compare it to a lot of the other people in the hunting world, it is significantly less. And I have a lot of people who are for their personal reasons, you know, moral reasons, deciding that they're not going to hunt or they're not going to eat meat, or even, you know, they'll tell me like, I could never do it. And <clears throat> yet they still very much respect and see what I'm doing as, as having some value and uh, being virtuous in some way. And so I have taken that feedback and I, I believe that I, I, it's not an act, it just is inadvertent, but I tend to be able to dis disarm a lot of feed, critical feedback or critiques in in the way that I speak about it, in the way that I feel about it, in in the way that I'm moved by the the relationship, and I think that bridge is a gift that I have and that I've cultivated that we very much need in the world today because so many things are super super polarized, and any bridge between polarized worlds and camps can be amazing and i can't tell you on the other side of the spectrum how many hunters 
that at face value might not be able to articulate or might not seem like they are very uh, spiritually connected through their hunting practice, they are open to the way that I talk about the, the spiritual side of things. And they find resonance with that, even if they would, even if they might be hunting just like, you know, they're with their buddies drinking beer and all that kind of stuff. And so I think both are, there's, there's, there's people on both camps that are stretching in their, in their beliefs and their open-mindedness. And my hope is that in my small corner of the world, I, I do my part to, uh, to bridge that united polarity. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, one of the things that I see emerging in the emerging culture that, you know, perhaps we're both participating, participating in to some degree is a recognition and perhaps a revivified appreciation for the role of ritual, which is kind of what we've been discussing. Like if you, if you identify things as sacred or important or integral to certain things, right. And we discussed kind of masculinity at the beginning, um, then it, it, it seems very reasonable that you would find ways to communicate the importance or sacredness of these things to cause people not to forget them and to allow people to access them in a in an integrated or a way that's you know somewhat digestible or acceptable in the culture and so for that reason i think we will see as we're kind of in all in this process of determining the things that are of the utmost meaning and significance and then i i think naturally ritual will, will coalesce around it. And I think that's probably, you know, what you do is definitely a component of that. Um, and, uh, you know, rites of passage as well. You know, we, we grow up in, in, in modern culture and, you know, the only rite of passage is like graduating from high school and then university. And then it's just, it's so, it's so industrial. It's so uniform. It's so lacking any deeper meaning. And I, I think that part of the reason, again, multifaceted but part of the reason we're seeing so many of the problems in the world today is that people have just the the kind of demarcation points of life and like who you are when you're you know a five-year-old versus who you are and could and should be when you're 13 or when you're 18 are very different things and if there's if there's no uh distinction between any of them you just go on through life and you there's there's never any intention behind phases in your life i think it leads to what we see broadly today, which is, you know, 40 year old people that are still, you know, teenagers, you know, people that are, are, haven't matured into the individual that they're capable of, of becoming. And, you know, for that reason, I think, and what you do, I, I think could probably, as you mentioned, right at the beginning, serve as a rite of passage, you know, something that, uh, you know, a 16 year old or what, what have you can go and do to kind of enter into manhood in a sense. And, you know, even, even when I'm saying that, I'm like, boy, in our culture today, that's not a popular concept, right? Like we're, there's so much, at least in mainstream culture, and that's, a, you know, a rapidly shrinking component, I think. But, you know, there's this um, resistance to the masculine, right? And so anything associated with that is poo-pooed and it's criticized. And that's such a, a tragic shame for, for young men, because you know, as you said, I mean, this is something that you felt you needed and, and, you know, thank God you took it upon yourself to go and find it. And because you re perhaps re recognize you needed it so much, but it's been, uh, it's been taken away from so many people. And it's so, 
you know, so hopeful to me and so important that it comes back and it's properly contextualized because we have all this shit going on in our heads, right? We have the monster, we have we have the artist, we have the the priest, we have all these different archetypes in our within ourselves, and culture, at least part of its function, is helping us contextualize each of those and making sure we know when and how to apply them when to be the warrior when to be the priest when to be the lover when to be the artist and absent these rituals and absent being truthful about all these different components of ourselves, we end up lost you know we and we end up subject to our our transient emotions right so the monster comes out when it should be you know the the diplomat for example and then again i mean our, there's so many examples in our culture today of of that, of, of people not having control of different components of themselves and when to deploy them. So, you know, what, what, what's it been like to basically be stewarding people through such rights? You know, I mentioned my interest in, in shamanism before, and it's quite a responsibility to be the one uh, stewarding people through that, especially when you bring into the mix something like entheogens, because, you know, that really open can open up a can of worms right and your people are very in, in a very vulnerable position and you have to be the one that they trust and to 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 see them through it uh properly so what's it been like for you to become this type of figure that brings people through rites of passage spiritual experiences challenging experiences like being on a hunt what's it been like for you yeah it's been one of the most rewarding gifts that i could ever be given. And when people have <clears throat> their, you know, their basic job where they're in the office, it's sometimes possible to grow as a person, you know, in terms of leading someone or in terms of like learning a new skill or what have you. But I am consistently forced for many, many hours at a time to be in that role and the only way to truly be able to embody that leadership uh, you know what many of my friends consider to be kind of a shamanic type of of role of, of, of healer teacher kind of role is to do it and I am, I was very blessed that my mother gave me a, a somewhat naive and ignorant, but incredible faith in myself to do things that are somewhat absurd. And when I first started, there was plenty of stories about who am I to do this? You know, um, most of the time I'm leading people who are older than me. And so there's, you know, there were stories about my age and all that kind of thing. But, you know, this I'll give you an example of how this happens over time. This past weekend, I had a 16-year-old who came and he had uh he has had multiple fathers. Uh his biological father left and then a second uh father figure uh, left and he's now, you know, trying to embrace a new father figure that his uh his mother has married and he's scared to to you know, let him in for fear that he might lose him again. And <clears throat> there was just a moment where he's using an entheogen for the first time in his life. He's 16 years old. And I just held space for him 
to cry and to cry probably a decade's worth of tears and grief and sorrow. And in that moment, I realized that I had to show up as his father. I had to step into the archetype of the father. And so I sat down under a tree and I just held him and I just let him cry and snot and everything coming out. It was, it was a very messy, but incredibly healing experience. And I've personally never had that need of me in terms of how I needed to show up as a leader, but it's, it is the opportunity to do that. That is an edge that pushes me to constantly grow and to expand. And so even though oftentimes it seems like attendees or people who are learning are the people who are, uh, are growing and changing, I am learning, growing and changing as much as anybody else because I'm being foisted into these situations. And the more that I have, the more that I have under my belt, the, the, the more confidence I have, the more capable I am in holding space and knowing the right, uh, the right wisdom, the right energetics, the right everything that is needed for this person in that moment. And it is, again, I think there's a certain amount of like uh, gifts that I have in that regard that came from you know, my own pain, my own suffering, and then being able to empathize with others through that. Uh, and obviously something that I've cultivated. So to answer your question, it has been, it has been challenging at times, but is the greatest uh, current practice for me to grow as a, as a leader, as a man, everything. Yeah. <clears throat> I can't, I mean, I was going to ask you about that, you know, just how because I think any, any leader, and this may be a bit harsh and maybe not the right word, but you'll probably know what I'm getting at. There's, a, there, there's probably always a lurking sense of imposter syndrome, right? Because we all are imperfect and we all, there's an element, even if we, we think, well, I have the experience and the compassion and the wisdom and the knowledge and all that stuff to, to lead, be a good leader. By virtue of the fact that we're imperfect, there's still maybe a little aspect that says, no, you're not. You're like, what, what makes you think you should or could sort of thing? And I just, um, you know, when experiences like that occur and, you know, you're thrust into this position where, you know, you didn't ask for it, maybe you weren't expecting it, maybe you didn't even want to develop in that way during that time, but the, the circumstance forces you to open up a new domain of yourself and, and, and probably learn a great deal about yourself. I mean, Maybe can you put a bit more meat on just what that process has been like for you throughout the course of, you know, the two or three years of doing this, just not only, you know, being out in the wilderness all the time and then just the natural wisdom that you can pick up from, from that and the signals from nature and that stuff. And then of course, the interaction with the, the other people you've been with, what, what, what have been some of the, the major uh, highlights or takeaways from that? Yeah, I think the, the most applicable and I think the most rare gift that I've received is is a certain level of embodiment that comes from learning that embodied way and what I mean by that is 
there are certainly people who have read more books on masculinity or read more books on indigenous cultures or gone through more programs and all these kinds of things. And while I see all of that as having value, I believe my presence in how I speak to somebody, in how I remain in integrity with what is true for me, in the authenticity that I bring to, to, to a, a physical interaction with someone is the greatest reflection of everything that I've learned because it's one thing to have knowledge in our mind and it's another thing to have it really sink into our body and become a part of our every fiber of our being. And so, you know, I, I can point to, you know, different things as far as like my, my confidence in the world, just knowing about plants and the different species of plants and animals and how to hunt those animals. There's a certain confidence that shows up in that dynamic of, of just knowing how to be a sovereign individual. But by far and away, the thing that I've taken the most is, is just an embodied sense of wisdom through all those experiences. How do you know when to deploy tough love? You know, like you're out in uh, what is probably often a challenging environment, whether it's like you're hiking for hours and hours and hours to get in position or to find, you know, track an animal or something like that. Like, when do you know to tell someone to stop being a bitch versus being more empathetic and compassionate or, you know, how do you, how do you walk that line? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of it's, it's intuitive. You know, I have to be connected enough to the person and, and see their, their recept receptivity and just understand kind of where they are in their, in their process. And one example comes to mind of someone who basically they killed an animal and they weren't supposed to be hunting that particular type. So they were, they were not supposed to kill a male in that moment and they decided to do it anyway and he said something like i just had to do it and we later i took him aside and kind of chatted with him one-on-one -on -one. i basically said given what he was bringing in in his shares to the experience you know it was an opportunity to talk with him about responsibility and it was an opportunity for for me to basically say listen you need to take responsibility for deciding to kill this animal, even though the rules that were governing that situation were such that you weren't supposed to, but not take responsibility from a place of you're wrong or you're bad or shame, but rather take responsibility in this moment, because once you take responsibility, you are empowered and you can take that into your life. And where else are you not taking responsibility and feeling disempowered in your life? And it ended up being definitely a stern conversation with him where I had, you know, I had some, some confronting things that I was forcing him to look at, but I, I was also doing it 
as much as possible from a place of love and compassion as opposed to you know a place of of making someone wrong and that's my work to always come from that place of love and when it does come from that place I think it always lands well. You know, I can be firm. I can give the grandfather stern kind of energy to somebody. And if it's coming from a place in love, that's like clear in me and I'm not triggered by what they're doing because I see myself in it or whatever the case is, I can far more easily be able to connect with them with that stern voice. Yeah. We talked about um, some of the integration sessions before. What what do they look like? Either, I guess it would be after a hunt and or some sort of entheogenic ceremony. How do you structure the integration sessions or whatever you want to call them? Yeah. I mean, most of the time I allow the integration to there's a certain level of organic uh ness that integration has over the course of the experience so after we've done plant medicine we'll connect we'll share we'll 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 share some of our experiences in a in a in a way that is it's kind of it's meant to be we have noble silence so it's noble silence for the experience of of doing entheogens together and then once we we break noble silence, it's kind of a, an opportunity to connect where they're at. And that might mean for some people, they want to continue having some, some space to themselves. Some people are totally comfortable engaging and sharing their experience. Um, and then really it's about, for me, checking in with the what is alive in the group and following the threads that are, that are alive for everybody. And for, you know, and I'll give you an example. So this past weekend, we're, we're having this, uh, we had the entheogen journey and I had a very profound experience with the 16 year old and the, one of the men who was a participant decided that he was going to gift the 16 year old participant, a knife as a, memento of kind of transitioning from boyhood to manhood. And this was an emergent organic thing amongst the attendees, which was beautiful to see. And so while we're eating dinner, I just brought up what are some gifts that you have given, you know, emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever the case may be lately. And so we're, everyone's sharing different gifts that they've given and how they've, you know, related to gifts. And then we start sharing appreciation for each other. What are gifts that other men on this experience have given you? And so we're all sharing together uh, the, the different appreciation. And it's, it's, it's a very loose, but guided way of having them integrate their experience together have a deeper sense of like a voice to share where they are being heard and they're um, hearing others and I think that part is really some of the most important is just prompting them to share and and hear the shares of others in a, in a meaningful way I got to imagine that these are often fairly if not life-changing but you know profound or significant life events for 
the people that join you. Is that correct? And if, if so, what kind of, I mean, I know you don't, you probably don't track people after they leave, but you know, what are some, some ways that people have articulated the, the ways that the experience has impacted them? Yeah, I've had a lot of feedback and people, you know, share things with me. I have, I have attendees who have quit their job, you know, in some short duration after the hunt and decided that they wanted to pursue something else. I've had attendees who have really doubled down on their own spiritual practices. So lots of people have continued to hunt uh, on their own, but bringing in all of these different spiritual practices that are, uh, that, you know, I've, I teach them. I have people who have dedicated a good portion of their time and energy to conservation uh, efforts and things like that, just feeling a deep sense of connection and responsibility to support nature and land and, and the world. Um, and I've had Yes, just so many examples of people who have uh, moved their life in sometimes really big ways, like reflected through their job or partnerships or whatever. But I've also had so many people who check in with me a year later and they share that when they cried during ceremony and I held them, it was the most trusting experience they've ever had with another man in their life and that is perhaps even more important than the logistical changes that exist in people's life but actually having moments of clarity and connection and love that they can go back to in their day-to-day life where they can find whatever relationship that was meaningful for them in in their in their heart in in some place that they can connect to regularly yeah that's super interesting you know it it reminds me i sat down with bill richards i don't know if you know who that is but he he pioneered a lot of the um the the last studies on psychedelics in the 70s at university of maryland i think and then kick restarted them in 99 at johns hopkins he's part of the roland griffiths and one other guy uh group that has been leading the charge on that stuff and you know, I was interviewing him in in, uh, Prague a few years ago. And, but what he said was, you know, like, and this comes as no surprise to perhaps you and I, but the impact of psychedelics uh, is not a drug effect, right? It's not like Prozac, you keep taking it, taking it, taking it. It's the, the molecule provides access to an experience and it's the memory of that experience that stays with you for the rest of your life and, and enacts profound changes, whether it's substance abuse or spirituality or, whatever, many, many different domains. And it's interesting to hear you say a very similar process playing out right like, like that, where someone just having the experience of that type of, you know, connection, intimacy, closeness uh, with another man and remembering the felt sense of that and it calling upon that when needed or when beneficial you know, for the rest of their life to give them power, strength, sensitivity, whatever to overcome or to confront whatever circumstance uh, they're in is, you know, it's extremely powerful. Yeah. And and, yeah, grateful that you provided that reflection from the, the entheogen perspective. And 
I believe it to be true. And when I, and I think many people think about their work or they think about this concept of changing the world. And that's a very, like what I, I, I think once people overcome the story that what makes them worthy is money and the things that they have, there's another realm that's like a similar type of energy of what makes me worthy is how much impact I'm having. And am I impacting a million lives through this project or whatever the case is? And it's very hard to calculate the magnitude of a deep experience for one person and the ripple effect that has on their family, their friends, and the world as a whole. And so I feel some solace in, in the fact that uh, I can provide, you know, some of those meaningful experiences. Yeah, totally. It's super real. You know, it doesn't get enough attention how, how much starting the ripple, how far that, you know, ripple can go, you know, that wavelength of, of impact can actually go. Uh, do you, you know, you finished off a hunt this week, this past weekend, do you need to decompress at all after guiding one of these, both from a physiological, a emotional, psychological, spiritual perspective? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I, it has, it has varied a lot. And what I find is when I was putting a lot of pressure on myself and was still kind of unsure about my capabilities, it ended up being a pretty intensely uh, kind of draining experience. And last year I had some uh, struggles with mold in my home where I was living and the opportunity to go be of service and kind of forget any of my, you know, health or logistical concerns back home actually proved to be very rewarding. And so I started to really shift my relationship where I didn't feel uh, as much a need to, to, um, yeah, to, to put pressure on myself and to feel exhausted at the end. And sometimes I really just, I could, I use, you know, maybe four to eight hours of alone time as a way to kind of recuperate because I'm with people constantly. I'm leading people constantly. I'm constantly tuned into their emotions and things like that. And so that can be exhausting is a little bit over overdoing it, but it definitely can tax me to the place where I just need a little bit of time to be with myself and myself by myself. And so that's what I do on, you know, Sunday evenings, oftentimes after I come back from a hunt and I feel very rejuvenated after I just spend a little bit of alone time and, and get myself kind of situated. And, and then I, I feel like, so energized and ready to be creative the next day. And, and that's where I've felt today from this past weekend. Um, big projects coming up and exciting stuff. And that that to be able to have such a quick um, and very direct way of decompressing and getting back to what I want to create is beautiful. Yeah, I, th I think <clears throat> a lot of people 
you know, cause I want to ask you about how you feel, what it's been like to what seems to be feel like you're aligning with you, you know, if not quote unquote, your purpose, but something more purposeful than perhaps what you were doing with your time and energy and resources before. And, you know, anytime I've confronted people that, again, if not having united with their purpose, but getting closer to it, at least on the path to like closing the gap between, you know, who they are and what they want to do and what they're actually able to, to go out into the world and do. Uh, first of all, you know, how, how does it feel? Because, you know, this is still relatively new for you, but it sounds like the response has been very positive and that has allowed you to do more of it and to refine yourself and to refine the experience for other people. So what's it been like to quote unquote, find your purpose, or at least kind of narrow in on it. Um, yeah. And, and because I think part of the reason perhaps why it's less draining is when you really kind of align with the thing that you think you're supposed to be doing, or that at least really, it, it has the, the effect of filling you up with energy rather than draining you, right? You mentioned the office worker before, and most of us can probably empathize with being in a work situation in our lives, which it, you know, literally just it was soul sucking, right? That's why the term is so often used. And then as a result on the weekend, you're drained and you're, you know, depressed and your mood is low. And so you got to go out and get shit faced just to forget everything and, you know, clean the slate, take two days on the couch and, and fire it up again on Monday, full of stimulants and whatever the hell else. Um, but when, it, when you're actually doing work that you think is meaningful, that you enjoy, that's aligned with purpose, I feel like it, it fills you with energy. And perhaps that's why you know, you're able to not only bounce back, but actually, you know, engage creatively so closely or so quickly after one of these experiences. But what's it been like for you uh, to find that or to have your life oriented that way? Well, first and foremost, it's been an incredible gift. And it, a lot of my friends joke and I joke that I either don't work nearly at all, or I work a ton because my, my life, my interests, my everything about who I am is so intertwined with the work that I do that it's hard to discern one from the other. And that is so refreshing. And it, it, it just affords me so much freedom to explore the things that are meaningful to me and uh, and have really no separation between you know vacation or whatever the case might be and and the time that is uh, that I'm allocating to my passions. Um, and if I had to if I had to identify some things that have been a challenge in regards to that, it's one really empathizing with people who don't have that as their reality and to really let go of any kind of of judgment around that because I see people who are very talented and they're very interested in 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 things and yet you know maybe they have golden handcuffs or whatever the case is and so they're kind of tied to to some work that they're clearly not happy with and part of my work has just been to let any judgments go, not try and 
preach or teach or anything, but simply live as authentically as I possibly can. And if that inspires people into a greater connection with their purpose and, and desire to do that, then, then, then I hope to, to support in that endeavor. Um, but it, it has been, yeah, incredibly uh, rewarding for me. And, and I think that I, I have a fair understanding of why that's occurred and, and like how, you know, I can support uh, other people who, who might desire that. Um, but it takes courage. Yeah. Is this <clears throat> probably a question for the beginning, but is this a male only uh, offering that you have? No, I find that men are mostly gravitated, gravitating to the practice compared to, to women, but I have had co-ed experiences and I have some on the calendar uh, for women to attend and they have super profound experiences as well. Uh, some of some of the most, you know, incredible stories. One woman came and she she killed an animal and it was something that was very fulfilling for her as a daughter. Uh, who had two brothers and and growing up her dad and her brothers went hunting but she couldn't go because she was a female and so it was healing for her to be able to engage with the practice and to be successful and as she's bringing the animal back she's literally carrying the animal back uh, to 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 process it she started her moon cycle so she started menstruating unplanned in the moment where she's bringing this animal. So it was like a, a very kind of spiritual blood for blood kind of uh, experience for her. And I think it's very powerful for women too. They just are grab, they gravitate towards it a little bit less. In terms of being a, a steward or a guide or a shaman or however you want to define that role, um, does it take on a different character if it's, male or female who you're guiding through whatever experience it does i don't know that i necessarily have the words to articulate how it does but every person is different and my my a job of mine that i'm not really all that conscious of but it, it kind of comes natural to me is to be discerning with where someone is and what they're you know what they're desiring what lights them up all the different mannerisms about you know what when they're nodding and 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 what, how they're sharing things and what they're sharing and just to be really dialed in to where is this person in their life in their emotions in their desires and and being a female definitely has a part to play in that, but everybody's just different. And I have to tune into everybody on where they are at any given moment. Yeah. Which is part of where what makes it tiring. <laughs> because yeah, sure, sure. Every single moment, there's something, you know, I'm differently, I'm tuned in differently. Yeah. You know, I've obviously been uh, exploring these domains of, of, well, psychology and philosophy and spirituality and personal development and all that jazz for a long time. And, you know, one of the things that just keeps you, you mentioned, you know, being dialed in and being present and being embodied. And I think it's very much maybe just a semantic difference, but it always seemed like to me, like the real master was one who could uh, embody 
the aspect of themselves that was most appropriate for the circumstance, but do, th but do so in a, you know, in the utmost, with the utmost authenticity, right? So it's not like, you know, that the warrior needs to show up, but in the back of your mind, you're still wishing you didn't have to embody the warrior, or you know that the sage needs to show up, but, you know, you're still thinking about, you're still in the monkey mind or something like the master is the one that can just, as the circumstances dictate, they can just move right into the, the one that's most appropriate and most genuine and do so for as long as necessary and know when to move in and move out and, and change all that stuff. And it, it sounds like that's certainly a, a, a process that you're engaging in on a regular basis now, I guess. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm glad you phrased it as such. And all of this, your questions and that comment, they help illuminate for me some of the things that I'm doing uh, that I don't even realize that I'm doing and some of the things that um, I have an opportunity to to be mindful of as as it's happening. So I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for just thinking about the incredible complexity that comes with these types of experiences that is in a kind of interpersonal, ephemeral kind of way that, you know, so many of my guests acknowledge in their own way, they're acknowledging Monsel's very tuned in with people or Monsel's like very tuned in with his intuition or whatever the case is. And I, I appreciate all of their affirmation and feedback, but I imagine what they're, what they're experiencing is that level of, of tuned inness with what's needed and what's needed at this moment and what's needed at this moment and true for me and this yeah. somewhat complex uh, relating. Yeah, exactly. You know, cause, and this is probably a, a trite oversimplified example, but you know, as I was looking at world cultures and traditions and stuff, when I was younger, I, you know, like, you know, a monk in a temple may be a very um, wise and knowledgeable and self-disciplined and all that kind of stuff person. But, you know, are they the, if you put them in Manhattan, for example, or if you put them on a hunt, or if you put them somewhere outside of the environment that they have become comfortable and, and adapted to, will the monk personality show up when another aspect of themselves or another personality is in fact the better and truer thing to bring into being at that moment based on the circumstances? And that's why I think, you know, like a, a lot of people you know, be a little bit judgmental here, but a lot of people that pursue these spiritual practices tend to find one that resonates in terms of wisdom and approach to life and engaging reality and all that kind of stuff. But there may be an over attachment to that unitary perspective. And what's interesting me to me to see emerging is kind of along the lines of what we both just said, where people are realizing that I think mastery is about being able to confront every moment with what's required in the most genuine way that you have that you're able or you have the capacity for and the ability to continually refine that so you're doing that you know in every situation doesn't matter in your las vegas or you're in the forest or whatever uh seems to me to be a more high fidelity representation of of genuine mastery i guess yeah i would agree with that and i think there's parts of myself that get constantly pushed i don't know if you or your audience are are familiar with JP Sears, but he's 
a personal friend of mine and, and we're relatively close and I have, you know, some of his uh, comedian friends that are close as well. And at, at face value, we have very different uh, ways of being. I am far more oriented around like sacred, serious death. And he's literally like always making jokes. And what I found is he has stretched me and he has opened me up to being able to bring in the witty, the, the, the comical, et cetera, because that's all spiritual and healing as well. Uh, so yeah, if I had any wisdom there to share, it would just be recognize where other people can, can draw out of you these other archetypes, like the Buddhist who's in the city uh, to be able to, to meet the demands of the world in a different way yeah 100 percent. and shout out to jp i think he was organizer of march against the mandates that happened yesterday yep i think at least i saw him yeah, you know up yeah. on the podium a bunch um so kudos to him for doing that uh important work but um where do you see this going you know not maybe not just well for sure what you do precisely but all this stuff that we've been talking about and these sorts of experiences and interest and this, uh, this willingness for people to confront or explore different aspects of themselves that have been lost or that the culture has not uh, prioritized or elevated uh, through their life. Like what's your perception of what's going on and, and obviously your role and how it's going to evolve. Yeah. I mean, I, I have found through facilitating groups of six to eight people at a time, a very deep level of understanding of at least the topics that I'm exploring and a certain level of, of to, to, to bring extreme, extremely <laughs> unsavory marketing terminology into, into the, the conversation. I've kind of like, split tested in a way or a b tested certain hypotheses that i had around like people resonate with this people resonate with this and i know that now because the organization is flourishing and more and more experiences are showing up and all that kind of stuff it is i've i had a hypothesis that the way that i speak about and relate to hunting is very disarming to people who otherwise wouldn't have a relationship or desire to, to, to engage with hunting. And that's played out in these, in, in, in these experiences. And so for me now, what becomes a priority is one, I've gotten a very clear message in many situations that I have to continue the work that I'm doing to have like a deep, uh, deep support of individuals and small groups. And so I will continue to do that. But I also want to find ways that I can distill this wisdom and this perspective that can impact uh, a wider range of people. And that might mean, you know, for example, I'm working on a TV show right now, and I also have a documentary that's in post-production where I share myself, I share my story, I share what I'm doing in the world, like amazing adventures with indigenous people chasing you know endangered species and and things like that and using those stories as a way of of 
birthing or planting the seed for many, many people uh, for, for the things that I've been learning in these experiences. And in the same way that, you know, Anthony Bourdain took food and he showed people that food can be a gateway to an understanding of other cultures and empathy with other cultures and things like that. I think there's a way that I can, you know, have a similar type of, of reflection for people and just other experiences uh, that allow people to come in regardless of their financial status or their time commitments or whatever the case is and have these seeds planted that hopefully have a, a, a ripple effect. So how do I make it accessible? How do I make all of this more accessible? Yeah. Is, are, are these experiences or these um, hunting trips, are they like standard? Is it always a, a standard length or a standard cost and, and stuff like that? For the beginner immersions, I do have a standard cost. And uh, generally speaking, they'll be, you know, Friday through Sunday, and they'll be out of Austin, Texas. And there's, you know, there's certain things once I've done enough of these that I learn, like this facilitation will have this type of an effect on people and that's why i do it and 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 it is also incredibly emergent because you cannot with nature you cannot control everything you have to let go of that completely and in this container that i create it's the same i have a plan but i have a willingness and an ability uh, to quickly uh, go with whatever is emerging so plenty of uniqueness uh, but definitely uh, uh, a type of, of coherent um, plan either way. Yeah. Do you, do you mind if I ask what the cost for one of these initial uh, weekend trips is, if that's public? Yeah, sure. I mean, usually I'll, I have like conversations with people because I have such a range of there's beginner experiences, but then there's beginner experiences that are, you know, with, for example, I've got people like Ben Greenfield who are um, co-collaborating on events and a, a wide range of other Special influences. Stuff, like yeah. that. So, so it kind of, it kind of varies, but it's definitely, it usually it's in the low uh, four figures, you know, low to mid four figure range. Um, and I also, curate every experience as far as the people is concerned. So I speak with everybody who ever attends a, an experience, get a sense for where they are and, and, and what their needs are and things like that. So, you know, but I book out relatively far in advance, sometimes six to eight months in advance. And so I'm pretty generous about payment plans and whatever people need in order to make it work for them, because I don't want this to be a, uh, a pursuit of the wealthy alone and, and, and be inaccessible to people. And how, how often, like, do you go or do you, I mean, is it, a, is it an every weekend thing? Is it a couple times a month? Depends on the month for sure. Uh, I, January and December, I had one event per month, which is generally kind of the cadence. Uh, in February, I'll have four because I'm going to be leaving to spend a month off grid in Russia uh, for for some you know TV shoots and stuff like that and uh, and so I just you know booked them in in February but it's it, it kind of it just varies um, 
but uh, there's a, I have a whole calendar in on my website that people can check out and see what works best for them. Cool. Well, as you probably know, there's a lot of Bitcoiners in Austin. It's kind of become a, you know, Mecca for, for Bitcoin. Um, so I imagine there's quite a few people in that group that would be interested in uh, at least having a chat and learning more. So if that is indeed the case, uh, where can they go to learn more? Yeah, uh, my website is sacredhunting.com. So pretty simple, the word sacredhunting.com. And, and they'll just fill out a quick application, takes a couple minutes, and then they can schedule a call with me and we'll chat a little bit about um, you know where they are, what their interests are in hunting and what their experience level is with entheogens and, and, and things like that. And I just get a sense of who they are and, and where they are in their life and see if it's a, a good fit to to have them uh, come on an experience um and this seems to be maybe the case less with bitcoiners but in any case i also really uh i haven't done this before but i super value privacy and uh value the the world that a lot of bitcoiners are trying to create and so if someone for whatever reason has a pseudonym and they want to remain anonymous that's fine they can just uh, apply using that um, anonymous name and also I'll, I'll accept uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency for for payment as well. So mm -hmm. I, I support it. Awesome. Well, man, I, I think it's incredible what you're doing and the way that you're doing it. And uh, I hope someday I get the opportunity to join you uh, on a trip because uh, I think it'd be powerful for me. And uh, so thank you for the work that you do and for the time today. And hopefully we'll connect again in the future. Absolutely, John. Thank you for having me and thank you for sharing and would love to have you on a hunt sometime. All right, brother. Take care. All righty. See ya.